welcome to the Nautocast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 102nd episode of the Nauticast titled The First Wish, an analysis of a clash of kings, Arya 7, in which Arya strikes back at the brutal masters of Harrenhal with the help of her new best friend, Jack and Hagar. You know, as much as I sang the praises of Harrenhal and Arya 6, we only just arrived at the place and this chapter really get into the meat of why this is my favorite setting in A Song of Ice and Fire. Can't wait. Oh yeah, we were on the outside in Arya 6, we are now on the inside of Harrenhal in Arya 7. So much fun. Fun? Question mark. We'll talk, we'll talk about that. Fun for me, anyway. <laughs> no one else, but I'll take it. Uh, I'm, I'm warming up to the castle as much as the castle was warmed up by Aegon the Conqueror back in the day. Mwah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Witch Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Dees and Gentle Dems, which is actually pronounced Ladies and Gentlemen, which I fucked up yet again. It's okay. We'll talk about it when we get to the question for this episode. Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldivar, the waiter for T-Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Sean Willis Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, and our newest member of the Small Council, everyone give a warm welcome to Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of the Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corio. Thank you to our counselors and welcome to Sir Christoph. And thank you as always, small counselors, and welcome to Sir Christoph. The names not only get better, they get more and more badass as we go. I can't wait for more. It's gonna be so much fun. We got some more high lords, which you get to read at the end of this episode, which also have badass new names. So our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three duckling novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Vades and Gentle Thems, <laughs> who asks, Do you feel Catelyn Stark could become a footnote in the series Endgame, a la Lady Stark? She died. From the last two seasons of the show, Catelyn is mentioned directly twice, when Arya kills the phrase, and during Littlefinger's trial. The later two books do have more mentions of her, and Arya and Sansa do assume identities that resemble Cat, and I would presume slash hope that Stoneheart's resolution would bring Catelyn into focus, 
But I fear that the House Stark post-credit endgame is going to be burying Ned Stark's bones in the crypt and talking about how great and amazing he is, and I fear that Catelyn isn't going to come up much after Stoneheart. Hmm. I am very much a Catelyn fan, and perhaps this is just me wanting too much, but Cat was a major POV, and her death is just as important to her three POV kids as Ned was, and I don't want her to be forgotten by them in the end. So I suppose a rephrase slight addition to this question could be, after Stoneheart is killed slash rendered inactive... What could be a fitting burial for Catelyn Tully Stark and the rivers of the Trident, taking her bones to be buried by Ned's? Amen, brothers. Queer Alex, rainbow commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems. Sounds like ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay, it got me. Got so me. So thank you so much, Queer Alex, for the question. And yeah, what do you think about that, Jeff? Especially since the show went in such a different direction with Catelyn, no Stoneheart, of course. What do you think is going to be the, the legacy of Catelyn? Beyond the questions of how Lady Stoneheart's plots turns out, who, you know, puts the knife in her, so on. How do you think Catelyn's going to be remembered in the closing pages, if at all? So I'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction and talk about the ways that the way that Catelyn, I think, is going to be buried, because she was already sort of buried in the Tully style and that she was thrown mm-hmm. into the river after the Red Wedding, which is a horrific way to be. You know, it was obviously her body was desecrated. She was stripped naked and then tossed into the river. So it was a horrific mockery of, of Tully traditions is what the, the phrase did to Catelyn Tully. So I, I think that. She was buried, at least in that way, in one sense, the same sort of way as her father. Again, sort of. So I would really like to see Catelyn Stark be buried next to to Ned Stark. And as much as she, in her very first couple chapters, says she always feels strange and like an alien in Winterfell itself, she turns out to be much more Starkish than... Then Tully, I think ultimately, when we're when we're going we're going to encounter her next month when we get when I, we have her month of Catelyn, and the way that she comes about talking with Stannis and with Renly, it's it's not the person who is the daughter of Hoster Tully. It's the it's the wife of of Ned Stark. Hoster Tully only comes up in Catelyn's minds and her thoughts about missing him and being away from him. But it's people are regarding her in the to in relation to Ned Stark. So. I ultimately would like to see her buried next to Ned Stark and have her bones lie next to Ned's. I think that would be a bittersweet, sad way of ending the story. But, you know, I've kind of like gone far afield from from Queer Alex's question. So how do you think that Catelyn Stark will be remembered and how should she be remembered at the end of the story, Emmett? This is definitely difficult seeing it through the lens of the show, not only because they didn't do Lady Stoneheart, but they encounter the situation, which will also happen in the books, in that it's really kind of awkward to bring up Catelyn when John's right there. Yes. When John's hanging out with all the Starks. When they're a unit, it's difficult to reminisce too much about Catelyn or bring her much in the plot because John is going to go very cold and silent and not want to talk about it very much for very understandable mm-hmm. reasons. So that's inherently a limitation as John takes on more prominence in the Northern plotline. And Stoneheart... You know, I think there's going to be some very sad moments, especially if it's Arya who gives her mercy, so to speak. But that doesn't that doesn't lead to necessarily a, a strong legacy. And, you know, fire consumes. It doesn't necessarily leave uh, many bones left behind to be put in the crypt. So I fear Catelyn's legacy might be sour in that respect. But I do think there's, you know, one of the advantages of the POV structure is you can just have characters think about things. So I do imagine we're going to have Sansa and Arya think you know, fondly and tragically and bittersweetly about their mother, especially since, as Queer Alex brings up, they pick names in A Feast for Crows that assembled together make her name. You know, Arya is Cat of the Canals and Sansa is Elaine, Cat Elaine. So they're Mm -hmm. forming their mother together. I get what George is going for there. So I think there will be a sense of honoring the the best parts of her and trying to care that forward in the same way that, you know, Stannis' legacy is going to be ash and dust for the most part, but Davos (laughs) is going to carry forward the, the best that was in him or the best that he could have been. 
Absolutely. I agree there. So, thank you for your question, Queer Alex. If you'd like to ask us questions, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword patron or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get early access to every regular weekly episode, show notes, special Patreon posts, and bonus episodes. And speaking of which, our next Patreon-only bonus episode, Every Rose Has Its Thorns, all about House Terrell, is now available for all of our poor fellow and above patrons and can be found, once again, at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Absolutely. And just as a reminder, we are switching up the published order of A Clash of Kings. So instead of rolling right into Catelyn's third chapter next week, we'll be tackling Sansa's third chapter, followed by John 4 and 5 together as one episode. Again, 4 and 5 are going to be together. They are kind of short chapters that don't really have a lot of plot movement or action there. They are important, but... We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to there. Then Brand 5, and then we'll have a April of Catelyn and Stannis, starting, of course, on March 30th, because like we were saying in our mini-episode, we're weird like that. But enough about Patreon and our schedule. Let's dive into Arya of House Stark. When we last checked in with Arya, she had witnessed atrocities committed by Lannister goons before being force-marched to the murder castle known as Harrenhal. Let's find out what happens to Arya in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Arya 7. Whatever names Heron the Black had meant to give his towers were long forgotten. They recalled the Tower of Dread, the Widow's Tower, the Wailing Tower, the Tower of Ghosts, and the King's Pyre Tower. Oh boy, Emma, here we are. Another happy Arya chapter set in happy, happy Hall. Yay, everyone is so fucking happy at Hall. They're not. They're not. Arya sleeps on straw in a vault beneath the Wailing Tower, and she works hard. Her overseer, we sees to that. But it's not all bad, she guesses. She doesn't have to eat bugs to survive. That's better. And she gets real food. And Hot Pie, now working in the kitchens, eats even better. Arya eats her meals along with the other slaves. No, wait. Weiss's charges at the trestle table. And once in a while, Arya even gets the chance to chat with Hot Pie when she goes to fetch food for Weiss. Of course, Hot Pie forgets Arya's new name and also gets caught serving Arya an extra tart. He gets beaten with a wooden spoon for that. Meanwhile, Arya rarely sees Hot Man Gendry while he's away at his hot forge. There were other slaves, um, servants around Arya now. As for those she served with, she did not even want to know their names. That only made it hurt worse when they died. Hall proves just as enormous on the inside as it appeared on the outside. Lady Went had only used two of the five towers when she held the castle, but now that she had fled, her small entourage of servants were simply not enough to take care of Tywin Lannister's vast hosts. So, the Lannisters weren't just foraging for supplies. They were foraging for people. No overt slavery references detected, we are moving on. Arya had heard rumors that Tywin Lannister planned to rebuild Harrenhal and make the castle his new seat after the war. And so Arya was a small cog in Tywin's attempt to restore the castle, running errands for Weiss, sometimes drawing water, fetching food, and serving meals to Tywin soldiers in the barracks hall. But mostly what she was doing was cleaning the floor of the Wailing Tower as Tywin wanted it made habitable again. So, Arya scrubbed floors, wiped shit off the walls and windows, helped move broken furniture out of the Wailing Tower, and did some pest control in rooting out the bats that lived in the tower and the rats that lived in the basement. But some of the people claimed something else lived in the Wailing Tower. Ghosts. Arya thought that was stupid. Hall and his sons had died in King's Pyre Tower. That was why it had that name, so why should they want to cross the yard to haunt her? The Wailing Tower only wailed when the wind blew from the north. And that was just the sound the air made blowing through the cracks in the stones where they had fissured from the heat. If there were ghosts in Hall, they never troubled Arya. It was the living men she feared. Weiss and Sir Gregor Clegane and Lord Tywin Lannister himself. Speaking of that motherfucking war criminal, Lord Tywin, he had ensconced his criminal ass atop the King's Pyre Tower, which was tall but misshapen, looking like a giant half-melted black candle. Arya wonders whether she should head up to the tower, declare herself as Arya Stark to Lord Tywin, but she's not sure if Tywin would believe her. 
but she is pretty fucking sure that Whis would beat her the shit of her if she ever did that with Tywin. As for Whis, who we met back at the end of Arya 6, that guy is scary, almost as scary as Gregor Clegane. The mountain really seemed unaware of the humans around him, but Whis knew you were around and where you were. Whis would beat his servants just because, and he had a large, terrible-smelling dog who he would sick on people if they annoyed him, like a latrine boy who lost half his calf to the dog while Whis laughed. It only took him three days to earn the place of honor in her nightly prayers. Weiss, she whispered first of all. Dunson, Chiswick, Polliver, Wrath the Sweetly, the Tickler and the Hound, Sir Gregor, Sir Amory, Sir Ellen, Sir Marin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. If she let herself forget even one of them, how would she ever find him again to kill him? Arya's thoughts turned to the vastness of Harrenhal. She was a sheep on the road to Harrenhal, but within the castle itself, she felt a mouse. The castle was enormous three times the size of Winterfell with kitchens the size of Winterfell's Great Hall. As for Harrenhal's Great Hall, named the Hall of a Hundred Hearths, Arya judges that had enough room to feast all of Tywin's army. But it's not like good Lord Tywin would deed to have his army of probably peasants besmirch his potential new seat. No, sir. No way. Walls, doors, halls, steps. Everything was built to an inhuman scale that made Arya remember the stories old Nan used to tell of the giants who lived beyond the wall. And the nobles never really noticed the mice beneath her feet, and that allowed her to hear secrets, like that pretty Paya was sleeping with all the knights of Tywin's host. The dungeon keeper's wife was pregnant with another man's child, either Sir Alan Staxbeer or the singer White Smile Watt. Lord Lefford would loudly declare that he wasn't afraid of no ghosts, but he kept a candle burning at night. The squire pissed in his bed at night. All the cooks spit into Sir Harris's food, which is just my favorite rumor, by the way. And then finally, Arya heard that a letter arrived at Harrenhal, stating that Joffrey was a bastard born of incest. Tywin had that letter burned and ordered everyone to shut the fuck up about that. And now Stannis and Renly were out in the field, having crowned themselves. And that has the Lannister goons talking. How could Joffrey survive with just an army of gold cloaks, his mom, his dwarf uncle, and Varys around him? Good questions. Tywin is going to answer them in due course, I believe. Speaking of rumors, there were lots of rumors going around about Beric Dondarrion. The bloody mummers killed him. No, Amory Lorch got him. Nope, Gregor Clegane killed him twice. Everyone agrees that if Beric was killed by the Bloody Members recently, he ain't staying dead. Arya did not know who the Bloody Members were until a fortnight later when the queerest company of men she'd ever seen arrived at Tyrant Hall. Beneath the standard of a black goat with bloody horns rode copper men with bells in their braids. Lancers astride striped black and white horses. Bowmen with powdered cheeks. Squat hairy men with shaggy shields. Brown-skinned men in feathered cloaks. A wispy fool in green and pink motley. Swordsmen with fantastic forked beards dyed green and purple and silver, spearmen with colored scars that cover their cheeks, a slender man in Septon's robes, a fatherly one in Maester's gray, and a sickly one whose leather cloak was fringed with long blonde hair. And at the front of the column was a tall man with an emaciated face and a long black beard down to his waist. Arya asks Weez who they are, and her boss answers that they're, quote, Tywin's bloody mumbers, but please, please don't use that name around them. They call themselves the Brave Companions. The new metal bassist in charge of the company was named Lord Vargo Hote. Yes, Lord in name, but not in actuality. But please, please don't remind him of that or you're going to get your ass mutilated. Arya looked at Vargo Hote again. How many monsters does Lord Tywin have? A lot. It's a lot. It's a hashtag Lannister mood. The brave companions get stationed at the Widow's Tower, which thankfully Arya doesn't serve at. Fighting breaks out between the Bloody Mummers and Lannister goons that night, and Sir Harris Swift's squire was stabbed to death while two Bloody Mummers were wounded. Tywin hanged both Bloody Mummers along with the shit-starting archer who mocked the Bloody Mummers for not getting Beric Dondarrion. Afterward, Harris and Vargo hugged and made up. Arya has to keep herself from laughing at the way Vargo Hote, quote, lisped and slobbered. 
But then the Bloody Mummers head out in a few days. There was word that Bruce Bolton had occupied the Ruby Four of the Trident, and the Lannister goons get to arguing over whether Tywin would crush Bruce Bolton or whether Roose would wait for Robb Stark to join him. Arya had not known that her brother was so near. Riverrun was much closer than Winterfell, though she was not certain that where it lay in relation to Harrenhal. I, I could find it somehow. I, I know I could. If only I could get away. When she thought of seeing Rob's face again, Arya had to bite her lip. And I want to see Jon too, and Bran and Rickon, and Mother, e even Sansa. I I'll kiss her and beg her pardons like a proper lady. She'll like that. Arya learns that some captive Northmen from the Battle of the Green Fork were being held in the Tower of Dread at Harrenhal, and they had some freedom of the castle after swearing they wouldn't try to escape. Arya thinks that this foul wouldn't prevent them from helping her escape, which is interesting. So Arya scouts them out, witnessing how four Frey brothers, which are actually Jared, Hastine, Danwell Frey, and their half-brother bastard Ronald, practice together in the courtyard until two other Freys, Aenys Frey and Elmer Frey, arrive to ransom them. Then there was a fat lordling with a bushy mustache who, quote, haunted the kitchens. This is Willis Manderly. And there was a Northman with a cloak made of white suns. This is Harry and Karstark. Finally, there was Lord Kerwin. Arya knew Lord Kerwin since the Kerwin lands were so close to Winterfell, but Arya never saw him as he was, quote, recovering from his wounds. But then one morning, Arya witnesses the Silent Sisters putting a corpse with a Kerwin battle axe sigil sewn over the body into a wagon. Turns out, this was Lord Kerwin. The words felt like a kick in the belly. He could have never helped you anyway, she thought. Couldn't even help himself, you stupid mouse. Arya gets back to cleaning the Wailing Tower, hearing more rumors about Tywin marching soon. To Riverrun. No, Highgard. Nope. To King's Landing to fight Stannis. Gregor Kilgain and Vargo Hope were out killing Roose Bolton. Tywin was going to bury Lysa Aaron. Tywin had bought silver to make swords to kill Stark Wargs. It's a goddamn Fleetwood Mac album here at Harrenhal, I tell ya. But the reality was a bit different. Arya rarely saw Tywin. Once she saw him chatting with Maesters, another time Tywin was talking with Willis Manderly, then riding to inspect his men in the camps outside of Harrenhal. But the most times Arya saw Tywin, he was standing above his men, watching the men practice in the yard below, hands, quote, locked together. Arya thinks Tywin looks strong despite his age, but maybe he was putting his, quote, putting on his lord's face the way that Catelyn Stark once told Ned to do. Father had laughed at that. Arya could not imagine Lord Tywin ever laughing at anything. Then the east gate opens one morning and Arya sees men bearing a manacore sigil riding through the gate. Ah, oh, shit, it's fucking Sir Amory Lorch. But Arya realizes that these war criminals don't look nearly as scary in the daytime as they did in the nighttime when they were committing war crimes. A woman tells Arya that Amory was returning, having chased Beric Dondarrion around the god's eye and, quote, slaying rebels. We weren't rebels, Arya thought. We were the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch takes no side. So Amory had fewer men than she remembered, though, and many wounded. I hope their wounds fester. I hope they die, Arya thought. Then she saw the three near the end of the column. Rorge had donned a black half-helm with a broad iron nasal that made it hard to see that he did not have a nose. Biter rode ponderously beside him on a desture that looked ready to collapse under his weight. Half-healed burns covered his body, making him even more hideous than before. But Jack and Hagar still smiled. Sure, Jackin's clothing was disgusting, but a man had found the time to bathe and wash his luxurious white and red hair. All the girls love a man except for Arya. She curses herself for not letting the fire consume Jack and Rorge and Biter back into Clash of Kings Arya 4. Wow. Arya feels fear as they pass by, but Rorge and Biter don't even look in her direction. And Jack only looks over her, not really seeing her. Mm -hmm, sure. Arya cleans and the rest of the day and then settles down for some sleep. She does her prayer, yawning, wonders about adding Jack and Rorge and Biter to her list. But then she falls asleep before she can. Arya was dreaming of wolves, running wild through the wood when a strong hand clamped down over her mouth like a smooth, warm stone, solid and unyielding. She woke at once, squirming and struggling. A girl says nothing. A girl keeps her lips closed. No one hears. And friends may talk in secret? Yes. 
Arya's heart pounding, she nods anyways. Jack removes the hand from her mouth, and Arya sees that it's pitch black inside of the sleeping chamber. But Arya can smell Jacken's clean, soapy smell and scented hair. Jacken comments that Arya is now a girl, and Arya retorts that, yeah, I was always a girl, dude. Jacken, though, knew that. Arya remembers her hate and yells that Jacken scared her and that she should have let him burn. But Jacken replies that he owes three to Arya. Three? Whatever the fuck do you mean, Jacken? Jacken owes three lives to the Red God for the three that Arya saved. Speak the names, and a man will do the rest. He wants to help me, Arya realized with a brush of hope that made her dizzy. Take me to Riverrun, it's not far. If we stole some horses, we could. He laid a finger on her lips. Three lives you shall have of me, no more, no less. Three, and we are done. So a girl must ponder. He kissed her hair softly, but not too long. Arya lights a candle, but Jacken is gone with only his smell remaining. But as she blows out the candle, she thinks about the people she might want to get dead from her list, slash prayer. Most of them were away from Hall now, but Sir Amory Lorch and Weez were here. In the morning, Arya yawns and Weiss threatens to pull her tongue out and feed it to his dog. She thinks maybe Weiss might be the first name that she'll say, especially as he twists her ear. Arya goes to work on scrubbing the steps and she wonders at everyone she wants dead. Maybe she should kill people fighting her family? Maybe, but she's a bit unsure about this Jack and fellow. A man might be untrustworthy. Besides, she should kill her father's enemies on her own, just like her dad did with Ice. Faced with indecision, she decides to avoid Jacken. Something she could do as Hall was massive again. But then Gregor Clegane returns with a herd of goats instead of slaves. Captives, again, slaves, captives, same thing. Four of his shit-eating monsters have been killed by Beric, but they turn out not to be the people on Arya's list. Weiss orders her to go serve them drinks and asks about any clothes that need to be mended. So Arya runs up the stairs. No one pays attention to her as Chiswick tells one of his quote-unquote funny stories. And I'll pause here for a second. Listener beware, this story is... As we were talking about our pre-episode, it's among the most stomach-churning, worst stories in A Song of Ice and Fire. It involves rape, murder, and child abuse. So skip ahead about three minutes to get past this section of me, and there's no judgment for either of us if you do. All right. So Chiswick relates what happened after the turn of the hand from a Game of Thrones Sansa 2 when Sir Gregor and his boys headed back to Clegane lands. However, the rains had swollen the river, so they found an alehouse to hang out while they waited for the water to go down. The innkeeper welcomed them at first, getting them brown beer in exchange for promised silver, chatting away at the boys. But Gregor Clegane kept silent, brooding over his loss to Sir Loras Tyrell in the joust. And his boys had stayed silent too, knowing what Gregor was like in his moods. And then we get the first turn to ugliness. Meanwhile, the daughter of his had been fetching and pouring. Fat little thing, 18 or so. Thirteen more like, wrath the sweetly drawled. Oh, mercy can't come soon enough for you, Raph. Egon, one of the mountain's men, starts committing casual sexual assault against this 13-year-old girl, and Chiswick joins in. They all egg Gregor Squire Stillwood to rape the girl to, quote, make himself a man. And then Joss reached up under the girl's skirt, and the girl ran away, screaming. The innkeeper rushed over to Gregor, demanding that his boys leave his daughter alone. At that, Gregor finally stirred and demanded that the innkeeper's daughter be brought to him. The innkeeper complied and dragged his daughter to the kitchen. Gregor then calls her a whore. The innkeeper protests that she wasn't that. She is now. And then Gregor came threw a silver at the innkeeper and raped the 13-year-old girl on the kitchen table. Chiswick laughs at the atrocity being committed in front of him, and then the innkeeper's son runs up and wrath the sweetling murders him for attempting to interfere. Whew. After Gregor was done, all of the mountain's men gang raped the girl then. And I'm leaving out a lot of the horrific details because it's it was it's hard for me to write and kind of do this in the synopsis and uh, i'm sorry I, it, it just is after the initial rape the murder and the gang rape just to add one more horrifying detail we get the end of the story from chiswick 
And now here's the best bit. When it's all done, Sir tells the old man he wants his change. Girl wasn't worth the silver, he says. And damned if the old man didn't fetch a fistful of coppers, beg my lord's pardon, and thank him for the custom. Everyone laughs, Chiswick most of all, and Arya stares at him before melting away back down to the cellars. Weiss beats Arya for returning without asking about the clothes that the mountain's men need a bending, but Arya just closes her eyes and thinks of the teachings Sarah Farella taught her. Two nights later, Weiss dispatches Arya for the barracks hall with wine, and she glimpses Jack and Agar. She looks around to ensure no one is around that would be watching her, thinking fear cuts deeper than swords. She took a step, and another, and with each she felt less a mouse. She worked her way down the bench, filling wine cups. Rorge sat to Jacken's right, deep drunk, but he took no note of her. Arya leaned close and whispered, Chiswick, right in Jacken's ear. The Lorathi gave no sign that he had heard. After emptying her flagon of wine, Arya heads back down to the cellars to refill the cask and returns to find that no one had noted her absence. Nothing happens for two days, but on the third day, Arya heads down to the kitchens with Weiss and learns that one of the mountain's men very, very accidentally fell off a wall walk and broke his neck. He might have been a little drunk, or it could have been his ghost. Maybe even Heron's ghost. It wasn't Heron, Arya wanted to say. It was me. She had killed Chiswick with a whisper, and she would kill two more before she was through. I'm the ghost of Heron Hall, she thought. And that night, there was one less name to hate. And that is Clash of Kings, Arya 7. Wow, <laughs> this chapter. Um, I, I knew it's been coming for a while now, having read it a number of times while doing former Arya chapters before we came into this chapter and reading it a few more times before sitting down and writing the synopsis and a few more times even after that before, you know, coming on to the air today. But yeah, what a difficult chapter to get through. And yet, I can't help but call it a, just a, a total masterpiece. What do you think of this chapter, Emmett? This is easily the best Arya chapter in the book so far. Arya 7 ramps up every element of her arc in A Clash of Kings by placing them in the outsized context of Harrenhal. The violence Arya faces, the system of power in which that violence is embedded, Arya's response to that violence and that power, all of it feels heavier, scarier, bigger like the castle itself. George spent the first half of Arya's storyline in this book burning down her last connections to her old world, stranding her, appropriately, in the scorched and melted hellhole of Harrenhal. Now he has to build her new world, like a mosaic made up of Jochen, Weiss, Gregor's men, the bloody mummers, and Tywin looming over them all, again, like the castle itself. Arya has passed through the looking glass to find on the other side a fairy tale world of fear and desire, a garden of forking paths among which she has to choose. That's, as you all, as always, it's a really well said, sir. So I, I agree. I mean, this is a the best Arya chapter yet, I, at least since since Ned's execution from Arya's fifth chapter to Game of Thrones. And something, you know, that I love about this chapter, about this chapter, about Arya 7, is that the writing matches the tone and setting. And I'm not just talking about how George reflects tone, setting, and character beats, and the writing, and adjectives, and adverbs. I'm talking about the technical aspect of writing this chapter. The way Arya is constantly feeling the need to over-explain and kind of do some over-exposition, because Harrenhal can't adequately adequately be explained in a neat, tidy sentence. I mean, just one example to kind of illuminate what I mean. So, this is from the chapter, of course. Harrenhal Stables housed a thousand horses. Its godswood covered 20 acres. Its kitchens were as large as Winterfell's Great Hall, and its own Great Hall grandly named the Hall of a Hundred Hearths, even though it only had 30 in some. 
and this is in parentheses, Arya tried to count them twice, but she came up 33 once and 35 the other time, was so cavernous that Lord Tywin could have feasted his entire host, though he never did. Walls, doors, halls, steps, everything was built to an inhuman scale that made Arya remember the stories that Old Nan used to tell of the giants who lived beyond the wall. That's two sentences, guys. Two. Two. That's, that's a lot. It's... These two senses go on and on and on. And I think it's intentional on George's part to show how Arya can't neatly summarize this oversized gargantuan haunted castle. It's an effective way to add just another layer of discomfort to the reader because Heron Hall, and I know you love it, but this place is fucking weird, dude. Well, that's why I love it, sir. <laughs> As I said in Arya 6, Heron Hall is a complex, ambiguous setting made up of equal parts political scheming, metaphysical weirdness, and the mundane daily grind. This allows the castle to signify in many directions at once. Here's what the politics of Westeros looks like. Here's what the magic of Westeros looks like. And here's what it looks like to keep your head down and just try to survive in Westeros. But, as I've been hammering on about all through A Clash of Kings, what elevates this book is that it doesn't just trace these political and magical expansions. It brings them together to see what they make of each other. And Arya 7 is a perfect example. The chapter begins by Arya telling us that whatever names Heron the Black meant to give his towers were long gone. Heron's ambitions are not only ash and dust, they aren't even remembered by anyone. He's denied the memory of story and song that Brienne says will immortalize her fellow summer nights. Instead, the names of the towers belong to Aegon the Conqueror and Balerion the Black Dread. They belong to the night stone ran like melting wax, hmm. the night that high castle walls for which Heron bled the riverlands were made obsolete, for dragons fly. Aegon used the magical world as a blunt instrument to sweep away the old political world and replace it with his new one. Yet in the process, he took an already blood-soaked castle and made it even worse. Heron Hall is the castle the size of a country, right? At one point in this chapter, we says that the realm's got more kings than a castle's got rats. So it's like Heron Hall is the realm and the kings are just rats running around inside it. Heron Hall is sagging under its own weight and is impossible to maintain. And similarly, Aegon's kingdom has fallen from his family's hands and has now splintered into civil war. Heron Hall stands in for Westeros at war. The opening two lines of Arya 7 feel like she's reading them to us out loud around a campfire, like it's one of old Nan's stories. Whatever names Heron the Black had meant to give his towers were long forgotten. <laughs> they were called the Tower of Dread, the Widow's Tower, the Wailing Tower, the Tower of Ghosts, and King's Pyre Tower. That's how it starts, very horror tone, and that perfectly fits the dark fairy tale atmosphere of Arya's time in Harrenhal. It's a world haunted by forgotten names, left only with names that speak to ruin and death. Yet, George then immediately swerves on us by zooming in on the mundane realities of Arya's life inside this gigantic crumbling mausoleum. Arya has a bed to sleep in. Mm -hmm. Arya has soap to wash with. Arya has food consistently. It's not the most nourishing or plentiful diet, but it's better than hunting for <laughs> bugs. And that's the key point. Arya's life has improved by entering Harrenhal. Hot Pie is better off. Gendry is better off, although Arya doesn't get to see him much. This is a deliberate upending of our expectations, just like King Aerys God's grace him in Arya 6 when the peasants turned out to prefer the, the mad king we've been told was such a nightmare. Again, our, our understanding of what's happening here, what's important, is being thrown off. You think about this in genre terms. You're not supposed to prefer living in the haunted <laughs> castle. That's not supposed to be an improvement in your fortunes. It's supposed to be the place you have to live now because that's where your strange new husband Vlad lives. <laughs> or you'll only get a big inheritance from your uncle if you stay the night. But, you know, if you prefer life in the haunted castle or the Overlook Hotel or whatever else, that's usually a bad sign. 
right, about you. That's usually a sign that you belong with the ghosts, you're going to join them, you're a corrupt, empty person. And we will get into that sort of kind of trope of the genre when we get into Arya 10 and how Arya leaves Harrenhal. But that's not really what's going on here. George is drawing our attention to how, for all the creepy imagery and backstory surrounding Harrenhal, ghosts matter less than food and sleep at the end of the day. It's perfectly fitting that such a theme would emerge in Arya Underfoot's story, because her chapters in The Clash of Kings are about showing you how the other half lives, the stories erased and forgotten, like Heron's names for his towers, from the narrative of the war. It's kind of easy for Catelyn, in the comfort of Riverrun, to dread Harrenhal for its place in the songs and stories that she remembers. But for Arya, even though she remembers those stories, Harrenhal is the place where she gets bread to eat where before there was no bread to eat, and it really is that simple when you're starving. Similarly, Harrenhal's monstrous size would seem to contribute to the spookiness on one hand, right? Like, Arya describes it as like a constant optical illusion, where you can't tell how big everyone is. It's reducing everyone to mice, because it's like, oh, this wasn't made for humans. This was made for giants. That's a really strange feeling. On the other hand, George emphasizes that what that really amounts to, in practical terms, is just more space to clean. <laughs> it's not really spooky. It's just kind of annoying. Harrenhal's size doesn't intimidate you, it's just more work if you want to occupy it. So when you look at Harrenhal, part of me thinks like, oh, it's like a sci-fi skyscraper, right? It's like this unrealistically huge thing that really couldn't exist in the real world. It's, hmm. it's like something we're seeing in the city of the future. But I also think of like the real world attempts by authoritarian regimes to reflect their control in big, imposing architecture. And how even from childhood, all those buildings have always looked so incredibly silly to me. Like, dictators who build huge, like, iron buildings. Like, this, you're compensating a little much here. <laughs> and, the, and I get the same sense with Harrenhal. It's both of these things. It's both, like, this mystical, otherworldly thing and a very mundane, overgrown castle. And it's these these signs you pick from. It's these ways of interpreting it that fits the book. Arya takes a stubbornly secular approach to Harrenhal at first, right? She insists there, there's no ghosts in the Wailing Tower. That's just wind through the gaps in the walls. Again, this is appropriate for her because she is the POV who has to fight for every inch of miserable, banal ground. You know, she is the POV rooted in day-to-day -day realities. There's, there's a part of this where it's like, oh, let Danny have her dragons. Let Team Dragonstone have their shadow babies. Arya's going to focus on her work. Thank you very much. That's what <laughs> she's got in front of her. Then again, even before Jockin shows up to shatter that illusion, George gives us just a glimpse of how Arya's young mind still hasn't totally given up on the stories that she thinks. In any way, even if there are ghosts, they'd be in that tower over there. They'd be in that <laughs> tower over there where they died. They wouldn't come over here to haunt me. I love that Arya could grant the existence of ghosts a very illogical, irrational thing but insists that they would, for some reason, follow a sort of logical procedure and wouldn't come <laughs> over here to haunt me. That's Arya's POV in a nutshell, where she's kind of cynical, but also still a kid. So she's kind of like on this liminal edge when she comes to these questions. But I think overall, Arya delivers a thesis statement for Harrenhal when she says that regardless of whether the ghosts are real or not, it's the living men she fears the most. Mm -hmm. Hall always finds a new generation of monsters willing to feed it blood. Again, like the Overlook Hotel. You are the caretaker. You have always been the caretaker. There's always someone like you willing to step up. It's that contrast of an overwhelming ancient-seeming environment with the smallness and pettiness of its occupants that allows Harrenhal to straddle these worlds. Like, yeah, overall, Harrenhal might blacken Arya's soul like radiation, but morning, noon, and night, her primary obstacle is not the curse. It's Weiss. It's Weiss and Weiss's hands and Weiss's dogs. It's not... When you look at that part of Hall, it's not like, oh, this is, you know, a spooky bedtime story. It's like I think of 
You know, those images of the civil rights era that shocked and galvanized so many people of sheriffs unleashing dogs and hoses on protesters. Like, that's what I think about when I see Weiss unleashing his dog on people. That's a very different kind of cruelty. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's everyday cruelty, real world cruelty, captured inside overgrown fantasy gothic cruelty. And the point is that these are two sides of the same coin. Some villains bathe in the blood of their enemies, and so they live forever in ghost stories. But some villains are like Weiss. Some just abuse the nameless, powerless people in their path because they can, and they tend to not get remembered as much. And Arya's POV is forcing us to take in both. It's this its this theater of the cruel thing where you have this overwhelming sense of spectacle and gore, but also a real focus on grounded realities. And that's what Heron Hall captures. That's what it's all about. I think you're absolutely right. And I think too, when you Arya in this chapter is the first time that she actually associates her prayer and her list with these are men that need to die that she needs to kill, right? And she has people as high up as King Joffrey and as low down as Weiss and that they are deserving of the same mm-hmm. fate. So it's interesting that we're looking at the people who are doing mass atrocities across Westeros that are leading the realm in a psychopathic direction, as well as the people that are just normally cruel, that are just psychopathic at the low level. But as you were going through and as I was reading through this chapter, Heron Hall and one of the towers specifically, it reminds me of a glass candle. Remember those glass candles, right? So at the end of Danny's story in, in Clash, Zaro Zoendaxis will tell Danny, it is said that the glass candles are burning in the house of Urathon Nightwalker that have not burned in 100 years. So we can we know that the concept of glass candles exists for George all the way back here when he's writing A Clash of Kings. And that line you were referencing earlier about Arya fearing men rather than the ghosts and the monstrosity of the castle, the way that George concludes it kind of sends a bit of a shiver down my spine. It was the living men she feared, Weiss and Sir Gregor Clegane, and Lord Time Lannister himself, who kept his apartments in King's Pyre Tower, still the tallest and mightiest of all, though lopsided beneath the weight of a slagged stone that made it look like some giant half-melted black candle. Okay, Black Candle is interesting, right? So fast forward to A Feast for Crows when Samuel Tarly meets up with Marwyn the Mage and Samuel describes glass candles this way. The candle was unpleasantly bright. There was something queer about it. The flame did not flicker. Even when Archmaester Marwyn closed the door so hard that papers blew off a nearby table, the light did something strange to colors too. Whites were bright as fresh fallen snow. Yellow shone like gold. Reds turned to flame, but the shadows were so black that they looked like holes in the world. Sam found himself staring. Here's the important part. The candle itself was three feet tall and slender as a sword, ridged and twisted, glittering black. A twisted black candle and a lopsided black tower that looks like a black candle. I want to say that George is intentionally drawing the parallel here between these two images. What's fascinating is that as you were talking about it, that George is integrating the imagery of the mystical, mysterious glass candles with the day-to-day operations in Harrenhal. I mean, this this potential black candle or the imagery associated with it is just the place where Tywin Lannister lives. It's his apartments while he's here at Harrenhal. He might take up residence someday. Who knows? But it's also a tower twisted by, quote, fire made flesh, by a thing that defies reason. And that's kind of the story of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? It calls us to consider the union of the secular and the magical. And I just love how George layers that union in ghost stories, in history, in imagery, all wrapped up in the mundane of Arya scrubbing floors, wiping grime off windows, and knowing where individual knights and lords live in this giant haunted castle. You make such a great point. Obviously, I love that that passage from A Feast for Crows about the glass candle. And I love the idea of when you live in Hall, you're like you're living inside a glass candle. Yes. You're living inside 
this iron wrought world of like magic and prophecy. And it also makes sense because a lot of critical information passes through Harren Hall and glass candles are supposed to transmit information mm-hmm. across great distances, right? So there's that layer to it. I think that's a great catch. And yeah, again, those, those different worlds rubbing elbows with each other. The fact that Tywin is making political plans in these magical environments, Stannis with his map of Westeros <laughs> surrounded by all the dragon architecture of Dragonstone. <laughs> And, you know, yeah, the, the magical backstory of Harrenhal contrasting with the, the very focused, grounded day-to-day realities of Arya's life here. She's mm-hmm. dashing about the castle, running errands for weeks. She's absorbing all the gossip like the little sponge she's always been. And the gossip runs the full gamut from sex to spitting in Harris with his food. <laughs> to Love that. Love it to Stannis's letter, which is starting to spread the word of the twincest far and wide. No one can pretend they haven't heard about this anymore. And this is one of the only times we see Tywin engage with his family's dirty little secret that he orders this letter burned. Hmm. But as they said in King's Landing, and I think Tyrion Three, it's far too late for that. The word hmm. is out. Because George is framing in Harrenhal as a microcosm of the realm itself. Everyone in the realm knows, and so everyone in Harrenhal knows. The castle is big enough to recreate every stratification of society within its massive walls. Yet Arya keeps herself at a distance from everybody, not wanting to know anyone's name, because that makes it hurt when they die. These are the lessons she's starting to learn from A Clash of Kings so far. It's interesting that that's the same sentiment Jamie expresses regarding his horses. He doesn't want to learn their names, because that makes it hard when they mm. die. And it's an interesting inversion of her list, right? Her list is names of people she wants to die. And this yeah. is, I don't want to learn their names, because that'll make it hard when they die. It's mm. these emotional kind of clashing inside Arya. And it's all because Harrenhal as this environment makes them all seem so small and petty and worthless. They're all going to die soon. The servants are mice before the lords, but the lords are the mice before the castle. Mm-hmm. Hall speaks to the amb- both the ambition of man and how death topples those ambitions. And of course, Tywin himself fits right in with this aura of patriarchy gone overripe and rotting. Of course, Harrenhal is the place he'd have to confront the truth that his glorious Lannister regime is built on a lie. Because look at this environment. It's all about power being being destroyed and collapsing and being built on a lie. We hear rumors about all the different moves Tywin might make next. And that just emphasizes how many problems he has, how much trouble the Lannisters are in at this exact moment. Yeah, you know... Being being in the army, um, and this is what are you, if if you're holding one of the bingo cards that was created on Twitter, ding, you got one right there. But in, a, in you know in the army, we rumors are a big part of how grunts cope with being in shitty circumstances with not a lot of information flowing from the top. But I think like the wildness of these particular rumors is showing really how desperate the Lannisters are growing, and they have every reason to be growing desperate. I mean, just to reemphasize. At this juncture of the story to Clash of Kings, Tywin Lannister's at Harrenhal with maybe 15,000, maybe as high as 20,000 soldiers. Joffrey and Tyrion are down in King's Landing with 7,000 mixed gold cloaks, cell swords, knights and squires, and mountain clansmen. And finally, Cousin Stafford is out in the west with some ten to 15,000. And these guys are most likely at this point already destroyed or dispersed by Rob Stark at this point in the story. Against that, Tywin faces Roose Bolton. His army has just marched down from the Twins and is positioned just north of Harrenhal at the Ruby Ford which is a really key piece of terrain and something that I'll expand upon come Arya's ninth chapter. Rob Stark is allegedly at River Run to Tywin's West, but is in actuality he's at the Golden Tooth or even out of the Westerlands at this point. Renly Baratheon and the Tyrells are marching up the Rose Road to Tywin's southwest, and Stannis Baratheon and his fleet are to the east. I mean, the Lannisters are surrounded on four sides with their only line of retreat to the south to King's Landing itself, and after that, there's nowhere else to go. So the feeling among the Lannisters is that they're on the losing side, again, something that Arya picks up on. Even Lannister men question how long Joffrey would hold the Iron Throne. The lad's got no army, but them gold cloaks, and he's ruled by a eunuch, a dwarf, and a woman. She heard a lordling mutter in his cups. What good will the likes of them be if it comes to battle? 
So naturally, the Lancers are at the bargaining stage in the in the stages of grief, turning to rumor mongering. Time will make silver swords to kill Starks is my favorite rumor. It's it's really cool. Um, we could talk about that at, at some other point. Of course, on the meta side, George is you know stacking the odds against the Lancers. They seem destined for defeat before the dramatic reversals occur after Renly's death and on the Blackwater. But don't discount something that we've emphasized over and over again, both us and Stephen Atwell and other other folks. The Lannisters are really fucking lucky to have survived the Clash of Kings. They really should not have survived it. But the Lannisters and Tywin Lannisters specifically are a little bit smart in that they're not just relying on their own power in order to advance their position in the War of the Five Kings. They are turning to an unconventional and every possible way force to even the odds. The bloody mummers seem to emerge from this cloud of gossip, as if summoned into being by the war and the tides of gold, blood, and information that go with it. As Arya thinks to herself, Tywin seems to just have no end of monsters on his payroll, as if he opened up Pandora's box and let loose a series of plagues on the Riverlands. So it's worth asking, why have the bloody mummers <laughs> in the story at all, given that Tywin already has so many pet monsters? What flavor do they add to the stew as characters that makes them separate from Gregor and Amory Lorch? On the one hand, they are even more outlandishly villainous, dedicating their lives to spectacle, a theater of cruelty on par with Ramsay's experiments. Now, there is an aura of fairy tale around Gregor as well. He is a giant who lives like Bluebeard, and Amory Lorch is forever associated with the wild image of the Manticore. But the Mummers ramp up the imagery among these Harrenhal-based goons, resulting in what Arya calls the queerest company she's ever seen, a riotous assemblage of comic book villains clashing with the mud browns of Harrenhal. You got Zorses, you got Shagwell's Motley, you got painted forked beards, you got feathered cloaks. It's another one of those busy explosions of color that define a Clash of Kings, as with Renly's camp in Bitterbridge, as with Danny's introduction to Karth. Gregor and Amory are Lannister cronies to the bitter end, and beyond in Gregor's case. But the flamboyance of the Bloody Mummers, the sense that they all come from different places and different levels of society, that separates them out. They don't work for Tywin, really, or House Lannister. They work for the war. They are its worshippers, offering mm-hmm. sacrifices to the many-faced god in all his forms. They are feasting crows, showing up a couple books early, following the war around in hopes of picking up scraps. The Bloody Mummers, as several people have pointed out, are the perfect mirror image of the Brotherhood Without Banners, assembled like the Brotherhood from all levels of society. But they prey on the people for both sides, rather than defend the people from both sides. And that, of course, is terrifying. But it's also doomed and fragile in a way that the exploits of Gregor and Amory are not. On the one hand, if Tywin goes down, those two go down. Gregor and Amory can't jump ship to Rob as easily as Vargo Hote and his followers can. On the other hand, though, Gregor and Amory, their service to Tywin guarantees them land, income, support against their rivals. They are protected by him after a fashion. Vargo is not. As we'll see throughout A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows, when the walls close in around the Bloody Mummers, they turn out to have no foundation for power beyond force. And there's not that many of them. As Roos says, there are no pardons for them. They're landless sellswords, most of them foreign. They're easily disavowable assets for lords on all sides of the war seeking an advantage over each other. So on the one hand, the Mummers are even worse somehow than Tywin's other monsters. That's why George has Weiss warn Arya away from them. How bad must the Mummers be if a wretched, sadistic person like Weiss considers them beyond the pale? But on the other hand, when the chips are down in A Feast for Crows, the bloody Mummers have nothing to fall back on, unlike the other Lannister soldiers who are just demobilized and sent home. The Mummers try to escape the war, but having made its use of them, the war eats them all alive. 
And it's the combination of those two factors that makes the numbers interesting to me. They show you the kind of people attracted to the war, attracted to a place like Harrenhal. And they show you what happens to those people after they have ridden the wave of blood high as they possibly can. They crash down. I tried to grasp a star, overreached, and fell. And that's perfectly appropriate for Harrenhal, because like the war, it is always luring ambitious, unscrupulous people like Vargo Hote to their doom. But for this chapter's purposes, I think what the Mummers are here to do is jolt Arya out of her willingness to keep her head down and survive in Harrenhal. Because it's after they show up that she starting, seems to realize, oh, she's not safe at all here. She's surrounded by mm-hmm. monsters, and she needs to get out and get home. Getting out is inextricable from getting home, of course, because Arya's chosen vessel for escape in this chapter is the northern captives taken by Tywin. In particular, she wants to reveal herself to Lord Kerwin because she knows him. Castle Kerwin, after all, is a half-day's ride from Winterfell. She is haunted by Winterfell. Arya's home is one of the ghosts inside Harrenhal. The sense you get from this chapter is that Winterfell has been replaced by Harrenhal. The castle she runs all around has been replaced. Hence Tywin having Ned's face, as Arya describes it. It's like a nightmare version of her home. Arya is drawing from her childhood relationships here, and so it's fitting that her escape plan is more than a little naive. (laughs) Yeah. As always, death crushes her hopes. And when Lord Kerwin dies, it's a punch to the gut, not only because an escape hatch is slammed shut, but because it's like she's lost home and family again. Arya is still counting on adult authorities to deliver her, but by the end of the book, she knows she has to free herself. She's coming of age, just like Bran in the North. Yeah, and we know that Rob Stark is coming of age, too, in the worst possible way, because we're starting to see more of the shape of the downfall of him in this chapter. I mean, it's noted that Tywin is giving the captive Northmen and Freys the, quote, freedom of the castle and treats them a cut far above just about everyone at the Harrenhal, including Tywin's own soldiers. The Freys get ransomed with a bag of gold, and Arya observes Tywin Lancer chatting with Willis Manderly on the Walwalk. So my, my thinking about Tywin is that he's developing the intelligence picture of the Stark-Tully alliance here, sussing out their strengths and weaknesses. And though I... <laughs> Honestly, don't think Tywin Lannister didn't start actively wooing Walter Frey and Roose Bolton until after the Blackwater and after he learns that Robb Stark is in the Westerlands. It's entirely possible that ransoming the Freys was the opening move on Tywin's part. I mean, it's just, I just kind of love the idea that George is camouflaging the opening dance between Walter Frey and Tywin Lannister in the usual practice of war. They're just noble prisoners that are being ransomed. Nothing to see here whatsoever. And as Wyman Manderly will note in A Dance with Dragons, Tywin Lannister had written Wyman Manderly with an offer for the Manderlys to return to the King's Peace after Robb Stark died. Quote, before he was slain, Lord Tywin offered White Harbor full pardon for our support of the young wolf. He promised that my son would be returned to me once I had paid the ransom of 3,000 dragons and proved my loyalty beyond a doubt. Roose Bolton, who was named our Ward of the North, named a Ward of the North, love it, requires that I give up my claim to Lord Hornwood's lands and castles, but swears my other holdings shall remain untouched. You know, my, my suspicion is that Willis wasn't a traitor necessarily, though I guess it's possible in a way, but rather that Tywin took whatever information Willis conveyed and used it in his future negotiations with Lord Wyman Manderley. But both Tywin's dealings with the phrase and Manderley's read to me as an effort on Tywin's part to assuage his shitty rep to his fellow nobles. See, Tywin Lannister's not so bad. He operates within normal bounds of warfare. You can work with a guy like Tywin Lannister, Lords Walder and Wyman. And as Tywin will say in Tyrion's sixth chapter in Storm of Swords, Joffrey, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. When they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. It's <laughs> it's politically interesting to note that Tywin is operating within bounds, again, towards the nobles, not the small folk. That's a very important distinction here. When he's at significant military and political disadvantage, when he's at a place of superiority, like the Rain Tarbic Rebellion, like the Red Wedding, norms don't mean shit to this guy. And 
another note that I caught in this is that I love that note about that Arya makes about Lord Tywin that he always is maintaining his lord's face that, he, that she can never imagine him smiling or laughing. In contrast, Ned is the guy who has a lord's face and also has the face when he's around his children, when he's around his friends, when he's around the small folk that are within the castle of Winterfell. Lord Tywin never takes off his lord's face. Every single time we meet him, he is always adapting that authoritarian visage that everyone has to kind of cower in fear from. Whereas Ned is the guy that will he will adapt the Lord's face when he has to, but he is still able to kind of come back down from that place of authority and be your friend. Well, those questions of what faces you wear become very important for Arya's storyline <laughs> in a very literal way when yes. she works with the faceless men. You do a great job teasing out those distinctions because on one hand you say, well, isn't it just normal practice of war that Tywin would exchange some hostages? That doesn't necessarily say he's trying to work something underhanded alliance with these houses. On the other hand, Tywin doesn't really follow the normal practices of war when he finds it convenient to. So why is he working with these houses? I don't think he, I agree with you. I don't think there's a conspiracy in the works yet. I think he's looking long term when it comes to breaking apart Rob's coalition, when it comes to houses that are going to be important to have on his side afterward for influencing other houses to keep the peace. He's like, hmm, the phrase in the Manderleys. They'll be useful. Yep. The Freys are really powerful in the Riverlands. They're an important geographical choke point. The Manderleys are the richest and most influential in the house in the north after the Starks. They have ties to the south. White Harbor is very important. I need to be on relatively decent terms with these yes. families. I don't think he's thinking Red Wedding yet, but I do think he's thinking I need long-term decent relationships with these houses. And Tywin when it's convenient for him, is very, very good at using these political tools. The problem with Tywin is that the second it's not, he snaps into outright butcher mode. Mm -hmm. But of course, we will have much more to say about that with Tywin Lannister as we go through the series. <laughs> so far in this chapter, George has done an excellent job of immersing us in the complex, contradictory world of Hall, as well as giving us a sense of how Arya operates within it and how that reflects back on her story so far. But now we need a narrative spark, someone to force Arya's hand so she has to do more than just describe Harrenhal to us as she tries to survive it day to day. And that spark takes the form of Jochen Hagar, Arya's new mentor to replace Yorin and Sirio and Ned, and the embodiment of the magical age of wonder and terror in this storyline like Jojen or Melisandre or Quaith in the other storylines in A Clash of Kings. Jochen is reintroduced in the context of Amory Lorch's arrival at Harrenhal. Arya feels a stab of hate at the sight of him, which only grows when she hears people gossiping about how Amory had been riding around the lake, quote, slaying rebels. Mm. Something George focuses on throughout the series, but especially in this chapter, is the role storytelling plays in manufacturing a consensus. Rebel is not an immutable status, but a political label dependent on context. Tywin started this war a rebel, making war on the king's banner, and his status changed through no action of his, but through changing politics in the capital. Similarly, the Night's Watch were not rebels, they were just declared so by Amory Lorch, but he has the authority to say so and to come up with the narrative afterwards that they were slaying rebels, so in the eyes of the populace, they were rebels. Amory is being framed as someone enforcing the law, when in truth, his actions are worse than any robber knight and are leading to a breakdown of society. The outlaws are, in fact, the ones <laughs> defending the realm. Yep. I think you can see there both George's politics in general and his approach in the series of insisting that the romantic values of the stories and songs are being upheld by silenced, ignored outcasts on the fringe. One of those silenced is Arya Underfoot. Now, her noble background definitely influences her thoughts and actions. It separates her from Gendry and Hot Pie, which is something we're going to be talking a lot about, especially with Gendry as we go through her story. But Arya's intense reaction to seeing Amory Lorch again speaks to not simply her desire for stark victory over House Lannister, nor even just revenge for Yorin. Instead, it's about justice, about fighting back against the narrative that Yorin and his charges were rebels who deserved what happened to them. It's about restoring the truth. 
That's why it's so disarming for her when she sees the three men at the end of the column. Rorge, Biter, and Jochen Hagar, now in service to Amory Lorch. She feels a sense of real betrayal, and I think it's worth asking why. It's not like she was ever friends with these guys. This isn't like Gendry leaving her later on in her story. What's really going on here is guilt. Arya saved their lives, risking her own to do so, against Gendry's advice, as she notes. And now they're Lannisters? Now they're her enemies? I mean, this isn't really rational, of course. As Jockin says in the show, they did what they had to in order to survive in a Westeros at war, a Westeros being set on fire. It's not really about them. It's about how Arya feels about her own place in this. She keeps hearing about wolves eating babies. She keeps seeing people spit at the name of House Stark. She's seen institutions she was raised to believe in, like the Crown and the Night's Watch, turn out to be corrupt or just failures. In the face of this, in the face of that, that village burning down, she did what felt like one good thing, one heroic thing in a cynical world. She saved three lives at risk of her own. And look what happened. Mm-hmm. All she did was put three more swords in the hands of her enemies. The people who killed Yorin, who killed Sirio, who killed her father. In a Westeros at war, in the topsy-turvy world of Harrenhal especially, everything is zero-sum and there is no way to do any lasting good. The system is broken. As such, Arya regrets her humanitarian impulse, falling back on her new coping mechanism, her kill list. She falls asleep before she can add those three new names, only for Jockin to wake her up demanding what? but that she give him three names. (laughs) And this is what makes Jockin such a brilliant addition to Arya's cast. This is why he comes along at the perfect time. His offer to her, these three names that he will erase, these three people he will kill for her, that builds so perfectly on the kill list and all the questions and issues it brings up. Does the list represent Arya's desire to right the wrongs of Restoros, a spark of her soul that will not be extinguished? Or does it run the risk of transforming her into that which she hates, leaving her unable to return to a life of love and peace after the killing is done? Now, I think we can come back semi-confident after season 8 especially that Arya's story is ultimately going in the former, somewhat more optimistic direction. But Jockin is an important temptation figure for the other path. He can't help her get home. He can't help her find peace. He cannot restore her dead. All he can do is kill. Hmm. And if she becomes like him, that's all she'll ever do either. This is especially potent coming back knowing that Jockin is a faceless man. Jockin Hagar isn't even his name. <laughs> it's the face of some Lorathi person he's wearing. Who he really is, is no one. <laughs> no name, no family, no side in the war, no stake in the fight, no banner in the wind but that of death. No home to long for like hers. The faceless men offer Arya an attractive temptation because they tell her that she can't outrun death and should instead embrace it so it can't hurt her. Wear death like armor, and it can't be used against you. Sacrifice your name, your identity, your family, and the loss of these things can't hurt you. And there is a parallel there to the serenity sought for by anti-materialists in real life, from Christianity to Buddhism, but with the end result here being endless death instead of peaceful (laughs) life. Become the monster in the darkness is what Jockin is saying to Arya. Become the god of death, the ghost of Harrenhal, and your enemies will suffer instead of you. And this temptation is only enhanced by how Jockin himself seems unbound by his environment, Mm -hmm. even before the reader knows he's a literal wizard. In a world of grime and grease and the smell of shit, Jockin always smells like soap. His red hair is this pop of color in Arya's otherwise visually drab A Clash of Kings chapters. He stands out. He is written to stand out. 
Oh, yeah. He really stands out visually, but also in terms of spell, too. I mean, when I when I was going back and looking at this chapter and reviewing a couple of the former chapters that we were were doing previously, I I came to this realization that Jacken kind of personifies the queer smell of roasting meat intermingling with the corruption of dead men Mm. from the Lancer camp back in Arya's fifth chapter. Amidst the gray, blackened stone, the grime that Arya is washing every day, amidst the ring of overflowing latrines around Harrenhal that the Lannister army is maintaining, Jacket is there, washed, smelling nice. It it's suction, and it's supposed to strike us as kind of this kind of head tilting moment. It's why girls giggle and whisper to each other at the sight of Jack and Agarda's long combed hair amidst the ruined castle. He's the alluring contrast to the secular world of atrocity that Arya has been witnessing in all of her chapters leading from the end of a Game of Thrones onto here we are right now. But does, and this is a question I think you're getting as, but does Jacken represent a better alternative to the horrors that Arya's witnessed so far? Jacken, as we're going to find out, is the mystical other, the one who tempts Arya to embrace a mystery cult, one that is dedicated to death. And as we're going to find out, Jacken is constantly bathing and his hair is always up to the nines. And I wonder whether it's not so much that Jacken is into personal hygiene, so much as he's keeping his body constantly prepared for the grave. For death, and that's something we see historically speaking. You know, we have the story of the Spartans combing their hair just prior to the Battle of Thermopylae. The reason why they were reported to be combing their hair was that they were making their bodies ready for the grave. So it, it, it's kind of interesting to me. I wonder whether Jack and Hagar isn't so much like seducing Arya, although that is very much what's going on here. But it's rather that inadvertently he's seducing her by preparing his body for the for death every single day. His bathing his office as we're, go- as we're going to see him, as we're going to see in Arya's eighth chapter. Arya finds him, what's he doing? Bathing and having a woman sluice his hair with water and with soap. And to me, that just feels like Jacken is always ready to die. And he's tempting Arya to come join me. Join me in this death cult. It'll be so much better where I am right now. Oh, I love that. I love that combination. Again, that that, that smell you were talking about that mixes these seemingly opposite things. Jacken represents this intersection of, of sex and death because, as I keep saying, fear and desire are these great themes that come together so strongly at Harrenhal. We're going to see that in later Arya chapters where amidst all these political scheming, all this this death and depression, she just like stares at Gendry's abs for an hour. <laughs> because it's important to have that note in there because it's not just horror, it's also temptation. It's also a question of what path you're going to follow in dealing with these horrors and Jacken fits into that. And he fits into this, this kind of dreamlike aura where he sees and recognizes Arya without giving himself away he emerges suddenly she's having this dream he's gone by the time she lights a candle like he too was a dream mm-hmm. Hall as a setting is all about how the combined forces of magic and death rain down on mortal men and Jockin has mastered magic and works for death he seems to transcend the castle's gravity and implicitly promises that Arya can too Arya has fallen not literally like Bran, hmm. but figuratively, a fall from innocence. And we associate the fall from childhood innocence with a reckoning with mortality, right? That's one of the big stages of growing up is understanding that you will die, as we were talking about with Jojen Reed in Bran's last chapter. Arya's kill list is the most intimate expression of that reckoning, whispered to no one but herself. Harrenhal, this giant castle set on fire and melting and collapsing, represents that reckoning with mortality on a colossal scale. So what Jockin is, you could say, is the glue. He's the go-between. He's a way of getting from point A to point B. He's the connective tissue between Arya's intimate relationship to death and the larger atrocities of the war. He can translate her pain and anger into concrete action. Jockin Hagar is Arya's kill list brought to life. Death given a temporary name and put at her service, just like the shadow with Stannis' face that removes Renly for him. And as with Melisandre, and Jojen, and various folks in Karth, 
there is a distinct fairy tale structure to this relationship that allows George to comment on the nature of magic as well as place his story in context with other stories and mythologies. These are little breadcrumbs, little signposts. Hmm. Jockin is like a genie offering three wishes. But he's also a mystical assassin who builds on these these conceptions of of older assassin orders that you see influencing pop culture stuff like Assassin's Creed. And these <laughs> conceptions are very ahistorical, but they're yep. also a lot of fun to play with. And you see a character like Jock and Hagar very much in that tradition. He's invoking the Red God. He's talking in this very flowery, <laughs> stilted manner, unlike anyone else in Arya's story right now. But it is similar to how Cyril Pharrell talked. And it is similar to how Beric Dondarrion talks a lot of the time, and the Ghost of Highheart, and of course the kindly man, Jockin's comrade back in Braavos. There's always someone in Arya's story who stands out this way. There's always someone in Arya's story who stands in for the fiery ladder, the possibility of transcending a world full of death, misery, and the banality of evil with magic. And those characters run the gamut in terms of reader sympathy. Like, Sirio and Beric are extremely sympathetic, admirable figures. The Ghost of High Heart's a little more ambiguous, she's kind of spooky, and then you got the Faceless Men where it's like, oh, I don't want Arya to end up anything like them. <laughs> but they all have this theme in common. And Arya's relationship to those characters increasingly feels to me like the backbone struggle of her story. Will she become like them? Will she become like Beric Dondarrion? Will she become like the Faceless Men? Or will she rejoin the pack, House Stark of Winterfell? That dynamic is temptation versus identity. Arya processes Jockin's offer of these three deaths as something that would feel good to her in the short term, given her list, this would allow her to cross three names off it, but it would betray the identity she's worked so hard to keep safe and active inside her, that spark she's trying to keep alive. As always, Ned's children fall back on him in moments of crisis. Who am I? They ask themselves, Arya and Sansa and Rob and Jon. I am Ned Stark's kid, hmm. and I want to be like him when I grow up. And Arya knows that Dad would not prove of this assassin guy, <laughs> not one bit. He would wear his lord's face like Tywin, brow furrowed, lips pursed, eyes ice cold, and tell her, no, this is not the way, the Stark way, the way of the first men, our way. You're not allowed to cheat. You're not allowed to send someone else out to do your death work for you. You're not allowed to take advantage of death that way. Because that implies a selfish, casual, detached disrespect for death's power. And that attitude is the unacceptable for the Starks, because the whole point of the Starks is to be the guardians against the army of the <laughs> dead. That's why they have to take death seriously, because they're going up against a zombie army. Arya is essentially being seduced by the enemy here in terms of the philosophy of her family. That's so good, yeah. This is the same temptation we talked about in Brand 4. Religion and magic offer to save you from death, but they die too. Jockin is empty, alive in name only. It's the same temptation we talked about in Danny's story. She tries to use magic to bring Drogo back to fight death, but it only makes everything worse. These storylines all have these themes in common for a reason. We see power as a shadow on a wall before Varys' big speech about it, with Mary Mazdur and her shadows on the, t the walls of the tent. And we see after Varys' big speech the same thing, shadows on a wall with Renly's death. We see all of these things coming together for a reason. George isn't expanding his story willy-nilly for the sake of it. He's presenting these similar political, magical, dramatic situations because these are the ideas that led him to write this story, and these are the elements on a larger scale that will define Endgame. We are seeing microcosms of how things will play out with Jon and Danny and the White Walkers and King Bran. So there are clear similarities between Jockin and characters like Jojen and Gwaith and Melisandre, characters who are trying to push that overall plot forward, characters who stand out from the political grind. They stand in, instead, for mysterious, game-changing elements of magic and transformation. 
These characters crack open a door to another world and look back at our heroes with eyebrows raised. Will you climb the fiery ladder? Will you break your chains and become the winged wolf? Will you embrace your status as the son of fire, lord of light, chosen savior of the world? Will you give three names to the god of death? This allows not only for character development, not only for world building and setup for later events, but all of those things at the same time. From the very beginning of A Clash of Kings with the Red Comet, we've seen these different narrative strands tied together. These temptations and collisions of worlds are what the book is about. But I think it's also important to not paper over the differences. If A Clash of Kings is a rainbow, we have to examine each individual ray of light to see how its shade differs from the rest. It's important to note the differences. And there is a major difference between Jochen as a magical mentor, a temptation figure heralding the Age of Wonder and Terror, versus Jojen and Quaith and Melisandre. Because those three actively sought out their chosen ones. Jojen traveled from Greywater Watch to Winterfell to find Brandon Stark, the Winged Wolf. Melisandre traveled from Ashai to Dragonstone to find Stannis Baratheon, Azor Ahai, or so she thinks. <laughs> Quaithe, for once, is very blunt about why she traveled from Karf to Vase to Loro. We come seeking dragons. These characters orbit the protagonists. They have dedicated themselves to overseeing their rise. They are supporting characters in every sense of the word. But that's not actually the case with Arya's new best friend. Despite having given himself body and soul to a religious organization, the faceless man currently calling himself Jock and Hagar did not come to Westeros to proselytize and convert. He's on the job. He's a sorceress equivalent of a company man relative to lone wolves like Melisandre or Quaith. And we will talk more about Jockin's mission, where he's going in the wider story in later Arya episodes, later stuff down the line on A Feast for Crows. But I think it's important that Jockin is the most opaque of these magical mentors in terms of backstory and overall narrative thrust. Obviously, Jojen is selectively honest. Melisandre <laughs> mixes lies with truth. Quaith only speaks in riddles. But they're all positively straightforward compared to Jockin, <laughs> because Jockin gives Arya nothing to work with. He doesn't tell Arya where he came from. He doesn't tell her why he's doing this, other than the fairly abstract suspect notion of paying back death. And most ominously of all, he doesn't tell her what's going to happen to her or him after the three wishes are done. This builds tension and adds to the dreamlike fairy tale structure of Arya's time with Jockin, making deals with fairies is always a bad idea. But it also separates her story out from those of Danny and Bran and Stannis, because their mentors just tell them how important they are. <laughs> Jockin tells Arya she owes the universe some blood, and he's come to collect. <laughs> he's less a mentor than a creditor's hired goon. That's how he's framing himself, of course. In reality, he seems to be auditioning her for membership in his little club. But again, he didn't come to Westeros to do that, which makes him very different from the other magical mentors. For Jockin, like, this appears to be... A lark, basically. <laughs> this is a side quest. He's going into this with like, eh, why not? Why not try this out? If it doesn't work, no big deal. No skin off my hide. And that's so fitting for Arya's story because she's Arya Underfoot. She's the mouse in the vast echoing spaces of castle and country. Of course she wasn't sought out by a grand narrative. Of course her magical mentor figure just tripped over her in passing. On the surface, that might make Arya feel less important than someone like Bran or Danny, right? That her arc of mystical temptation and revelation feels accidental. It might make her feel marginal by comparison. I think on a deeper level, though, it makes her feel more important than before. Because she has earned her sudden place in the pantheon of gods and heroes. She's being swept up in this magical tide, not because someone somewhere said she would be important, but because of her actions. Someone saw her doing something and saw that she was important because of that. 
Again, it's appropriate for a storyline so low to the ground that the stakes are much more intimate than in the other magical temptations in The Clash of Kings. I say that Jockin stands in for the Age of Wonder and Terror, this age when there are more magical influences in the world of Westeros. But he doesn't directly allude to it, unlike the others. Like, Jojen and Melisandre and Quaithe directly talk about, hey, things are on the rise, important things are happening. Jockin doesn't really seem to care about that, even as he embodies it. Even as the Arya-Jockin dynamic intersects with the larger picture thanks to Weasel Soup, as we will see in Arya 9, the focus is always on what their dynamic says about Arya's relationship to the world around her. It's not about the apocalypse, which is what Jojen and Melisandre keep talking about, the larger scale effects. And I think why that is, and I'm curious to see if you agree with this, Mm -hmm. it's because Arya's story is ultimately less about how she fits into the cosmic puzzle unfolding in the margins, and more about how her brushes with death struggle against her desire to return to home and family and be once more whole. I think of the main characters, the stakes in Arya's storyline are the most intimate. I think they're Mm -hmm. the the least concerned with the huge tides of the world, although they do, Arya does intersect with those larger uh, forces. And I think her storyline is the most about just what happens to her. Yeah, I think I I agree, obviously, of course. But I also think like when you're looking at Arya too, so far in Clash of Kings, what Arya's story has been about has been her accidentally almost like falling into these situations, right? The fact that they took a certain road led them to intersect with the gold cloaks that were coming up from King's Landing and the fact that they were trying to avoid those gold cloaks afterwards led them to encounter Amory Lorch. It was, Hmm. they got hit by a bus coming out of nowhere it wasn't that there was intentional on their part it was all kind of like accidental like Arya and her companions falling into these spots in the narrative and it's the same thing for Jack and Agar too I want to say because Jack and Agar happened to be in the King's Landing dungeon and under the Red Keep and was swept up by Yorn and brought up north to go to the wall and Arya just happened to be there too and was rescued by 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 Yorn at, at his at Ned's execution and so she is kind of being swept into this grand narrative by forces that are seemingly accidental, that are coincidental, that are not like Jojen, that are not like Melisandre, who are specifically seeking out their Azor Ahai, their prince that was promised, their person who is going to save the world from the others and from the coming darkness that's coming south from the others that are in the in the far north. I think that's I think that's fascinating that George plays with both of those with all of those different types of story structures and plays with it too with Arya here and that Jack and frames this as like oh, the Red God must have three lives. But then when you go up to Bravos in A Feast for Crows and you encounter the face of Spen, there's not really any R'hllor type imagery going on with there, going on with them. There's not any like sense that the face of Spen really interacting with the Red God. Maybe this is kind of like one of those things where George didn't really know where he was going to go with the face of Spen. I think that's probably right, honestly. I think that he just dropped the Red God in here because this is Clash of Kings. R'hllor right. has been introduced. I don't think he had them in mind, but it kind of fits because the whole point is that this was just brushing past Arya's fingertips. It's not actually the central part of her story. It's a temptation. It's not what defines her the way this kind of stuff really does define Stannis or Danny. And so I, I, I think every part of Jockin's character is, is kind of built around that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's great that it's built around that. But I also think, too, when we're talking about like the accidental brushes of coincidences that are all occurring at the same time, that feeds into the final part of this chapter, which, again, is the hardest part of A Song of Ice and Fire that, we're, that we'll be covering here in the Not A Cast podcast. So, again, if you're listening to this and we, we just want to warn you guys, we're going to be talking about the, the story that Chiswick tells about the gang rape and murders that they're, him and his men are going to be recounting as they're going up north after the tourney. After the, after the hands turning back from a Game of Thrones. And it's also like the same sort of feeling you get too, where Jack and Agar kind of accidentally encounters Arya. The mountain's men accidentally encounter this poor innkeep, his daughter and his son, at this one juncture in the story because the river is running too high. 
Arya 7 is such an accomplished chapter because it keeps introducing new elements that wash over the previous ones, changing the situation completely, changing the focus, changing what you think is important and why. Heron the Black's names for his towers get replaced, and then Arya ignores them in favor of her daily routine. Then we move on from that to the bloody mummers who make everyone else look normal. <laughs> then Lord Kerwin offers her hope. Then he dies. Then Jockin shows back up to reframe it all with his offer. And it's very important that we have that offer in mind, the temptation to kill, when we transition into the final set piece of Arya 7, Chiswick's story. So why is this the hardest to read part of A Song of Ice and Fire? There is no shortage of atrocities in this story. Some are shown directly, some are described. Many are committed against powerless people. Many are sexual crimes committed against women. Most go unpunished by the powers that be. What Chiswick describes in this chapter combines all of those elements, but it goes deeper than that. It's how George structures it, the details he works in. First of all, we have the framing device of the story. This is not something we are seeing directly. This is not something we are hearing gossip about in a kind of a neutral fashion. This is something being directly told to an audience. We are being shown how a person like Chiswick sees the world and justifies their abominable behavior in retrospect. It also ties into the power of rumor we touched on, and Jockin as a figure out of stories. Arya's POV is a vessel for stories that have been erased and forgotten. Chiswick tells the story to appeal to an audience, his fellow soldiers, and that's part of what makes this so memorably awful. This isn't being forced out of him. He's telling it as part of a relaxed, good time with his bros. This is fun <laughs> for him. And the first words out of his mouth are so important, that he is emphasizing that this happened before the war. Before the war came. This can't be blamed on the war. This was not made possible by the breakdown of social order in the wake of a civil war. This happened in a Westeros at peace, united north to south by King Robert. And this is, once more, an upending of expectations, forcing us to confront the context in which we consider the atrocities dominating these Arya chapters. They are not just war crimes. They are seemingly regular occurrences in peacetime. So how can that be meaningfully called peace? Is that a time we really want to restore, or will the Westeros emerging from this war have to be stronger than that to survive? Now, of course, the war does make all of this worse, and we already saw poor Micah chopped up during peacetime, so this is not exactly news that this is how Westeros works. But it is part of a process in these Arya chapters in which George drops us in the middle of soul-shattering violence and then denies us a cathartic understanding. He denies us a context and a way of making sense of it that will calm the horror inside we feel at it. Our perspective on the blunt awfulness at the heart of these chapters is constantly being challenged. Arya's relationship to her world is changing and so must ours. And yet, Chiswick also takes great care to mention the other factors that were at play that night, the chants at work, the rains kept them from crossing, the ale was weak, the innkeep kept bothering them, Gregor was pissed off about the trick Loris pulled during the hands tourney, on and on and on. So why do this? Is he just setting the scene like a good storyteller does? Well, that is what George is doing. He's building the agony and tension by having Chiswick stretch it out this long, because we know what kind of men these are from Arya's early chapters, and so we know the story can't possibly end well. But I think what Chiswick is actually doing is laying the grounds for a justification of his actions. This is a preemptive case for the defense, with Arya acting a silent judge and jury. What Chiswick is saying by bringing up all these details is that we committed gang rape and murder because we were bored and cranky, and our heads hurt. And you get it, right, fellas? Mm. And they do. That's what makes it extra chilling. That's what makes the framing device of the story so effective to communicating George's point. It's not just Chiswick, this one terrible guy. They all get it. They all think it's funny. They would all do it in his place. 
they would all take out their vague discomforts and inconveniences by ruining the lives of whatever innocent people trying to get by happened to be in their path. Chiswick's storytelling bias reasserts itself when he lies about the girl's age, saying she was roughly 18 and Raph says, no, 13. <laughs> and then Chiswick says he maybe, maybe was one of the people who started touching her initially. He definitely was. Why is he hedging his bets here? It's not like these guys are going to judge him. I think it becomes clear what's happening when Chiswick blames the innkeep for the gang rape, when he says he's got no one to blame but himself for what happened. And this is just so galling, I almost just choked on it on mm. reread. Like, Chiswick honestly seems to believe that everything was fine up until that point, all the touching and slapping and grabbing her up. Everything was fine until this asshole stuck his nose in and dared to ask them to stop. That was the problem. And then everything that ensued was therefore his responsibility, even though all the innkeep did was ask Gregor to live up to his title, to preserve the rights of the young and innocent, to be a knight who remembered his vows. And Gregor's response to being called on the carpet like this is to demonstrate that the combination of physical force and wealth entitles him to do whatever the fuck he wants. And whatever the fuck he wants is ripping the girl's clothes off and raping her in front of her father. A scene dominated by growing tension has now become an unimaginable nightmare. And Chiswick laughs. Not just while telling the story. He laughed in the moment. He laughed in the father's face. He laughed at the idea that they could be called upon to do their duty. Instead, they do the opposite. And somehow the story gets even worse from there. It turns out the innkeep has another child, a son, who races up from the cellar at the noise and heroically comes to the defense of his sister. And it immediately comes to nothing. Rath casually kills him. Chiswick casually mentions this, and both the rape and the story about the rape proceed completely unhindered by that young man's presence. Again, Chiswick frames this as the fault of the victims. Rath, quote, had to kill that young man because he might have interfered with their pleasure in raping his sister. Why would he do such a thing? Gregor's men follow him in the rape in turn, and all at once you realize how normal this is for them, how routine. They're all just forming up in line. Chiswick even knows each of their sexual preferences. That's how common this is for them. <laughs> As for Chiswick's preferences, he says he would have preferred her to fight, but in his mind, she's decided she likes it. Again, he's trying to retroactively establish her consent that she took part in this. It's really her responsibility, her fault, not us. And that's what feeds into the punchline of Chiswick's big joke. And here is where the full scope of George's argument in telling this story becomes clear. Gregor demands his change because she wasn't worth it, because she's nothing, because she's a subhuman peasant woman I took because I was bored, because my head hurt, because I was angry at another nobleman for a trick he pulled in our fake battle, because her father dared to ask me to protect her. This is a level of cruelty and control that goes beyond the animal instincts generally associated with Gregor Clegane. There is a specific worldview being hammered home. You are worthless not only because we can rape and kill you, but also because we can buy and sell you. And by buying and selling you, we can act like you have given consent. She's not a rape victim. She's a whore. I paid for that. You are property, not people. Imagine having your family casually destroyed before your eyes and then being told they were worth copper, not silver. Imagine being forced to hand these monsters some of their money back over the trembling bruised body of your daughter, over the dead body of your son, and thanking them for the custom. <laughs> 
This is a thesis statement moment for A Song of Ice and Fire, in which George lays bare the connections between sexual violence on one hand and widespread political and economic exploitation on the other. The latter props up the former. Always. That's why it's so significant that this happened in peacetime. This is the status quo. This is the system working as intended as far as the people in power are concerned. This is the world allowed for by the generation that raised Arya Stark. It's a world in which inequalities of power inevitably lead to abuses of power. The political marginalization of the small folk, their economic dependence on the higher classes, that's what makes them vulnerable to attack by their landlord's pet thugs. Bearing silent witness to this story is a moment of radicalization for Arya Stark, in which all of the chaotic violence and loss and disillusionment she's been put through is clarified. It's crystallized into a single hideous action and her own reaction to it. And when I say radicalization, I mean that this is the moment in which Arya stops counting on anyone or anything else to set this cursed, unjust world to rights. She has to do it. Herself. And she has to use any available tool, even if it would shock and sadden her father. This is like a generational moment of political change in which the next generation of House Stark says, we need other tools, we need other ways of approaching the world. Arya realizes in full, at last, that this is not a world Ned prepared her for. And so she has to at least partially let dad go and step into a realm of uncertainty. And that is the essence of both coming-of-age stories and most fairy tales. In making this decision, she momentarily achieves serenity. And I can't express how much I love the way in which George writes this. After Chiswick's story is done, after Arya leaves, George does not give us like an italicized paragraph of inner monologue in which Arya's horror and anger are directly, literally expressed. George knows he doesn't need that. He knows all the horror and anger are in our heads because of how well he constructed that nightmare of a story. He knows that we will project all that horror and anger into Arya when she whispers Chiswick into Jockin's ear. He knows we will be with her so strongly. Hmm. It's such confident storytelling. And then he wraps the chapter up perfectly by Arya declaring herself the true ghost of Harrenhal, killing with a whisper. This is the ideal note of ambiguity with which to close off Arya 7 after the intense rush of emotions evoked in us by Chiswick's hideous story. George throws everything he can at us to make us feel that Chiswick's death is justified. More than justified, righteous. Mm -hmm. He committed these unspeakable deeds for no real reason and is laughing about it afterwards. And what really haunted me on this reread is how all of this started because Chiswick and the other Mountains men were trying to induct young Joss Stillwood Esquire into their gang. They were trying to show him how to be a man, as they put it, and this is how they showed him. Just as Arya is coming of age, just as she is being initiated in the various dark arts of Westeros, Chiswick is out there training a next generation of rapists and killers. It's never going to stop. That's why he has to die, more than anything in my opinion. Revenge is futile, like the innkeep's daughter will never know that Chiswick died for his crimes, it's not going to help her. But Chiswick has to be stopped before he can make any more young men like him, before he can help cement this worldview in people of Arya's generation. As an isolated act, killing him is pure justice, and I think we are supposed to pump our fists in triumph as finally, finally, yes. one of the brutes burning down the Riverlands gets his. It feels for a moment like all the downtrodden are striking back with Arya, a blow aimed upward after so many aimed down, and it's immensely cathartic. But of course, <laughs> this doesn't take place in isolation. It's the first wish, out of three, 
Things are going to get much more complicated as Arya goes on, just as Danny goes from righteousness to complex power plays in Slaver's Bay. Coming back on Riri, there's a real note of sadness and fear to Arya declaring herself one of the ghosts, because that's not going to make her happy in the long run. And here's where we see how Jonkin himself stands in for Harrenhal. Like all the spookiness and violence hovering around the castle swirl together into a man. He can wield the invisible murderous power of Harrenhal on her behalf. But in doing so, Arya gets embroiled in the atmosphere of corruption and death along with him. So the question becomes not only will Arya strike back, but what will Arya do with herself after the striking back is done? And that applies not just to Harrenhal, but the entirety of her story. That is really well said, and I appreciate you going through very thoroughly through the scene that it was was hard for me to to, to summarize in the synopsis. So I, I really appreciate it, and, and doing it in a way that was, I, I think, not exploitive, exploitative, which I don't think is the way that George wrote this scene, but was showing compassion to to people. Because this scene, as, as horrific and as terrible as it is, this sort of stuff occurs in, in the real world, right? I mean, we have to be honest in that George is reflecting events that have occurred in the real world, both in a war, wartime setting, as Arya finds herself right now in this juncture in A Clash of Kings, but also before the war even starts. You know, as, as you were going through, I was thinking about the story that Tyrion relates about the rape of Tysha and about how they were giving her silver coins. And at the very end, Tyrion had to go last and he was and she was given a, a golden coin by her father or rather by Tyrion's father because a Lannister was worth more. And here we're seeing that coming down to the lowest level of, of of people in Westeros, the small folk, they're not even worth silvers. They're worth coppers in the end. And I think that's really sad. And just to just to emphasize this point about Westeros, it's not just the people in the Westerlands. It's not just Gregor Clegane. It's people like Robert Baratheon, as we talk, as we'll talk about in Feast for Crows and his rape of, of his wife, Cersei Lancer. It's people like Roose Bolton, a Northman, right? The good, solid Northman who has the women who are have the crime of sleeping with Lannister men sitting in wooden cages, essentially being opened up for rape by various men. And that's going to open Arya's 10th chapter in a clash of Kings of Arya witnessing pretty Paya and these other women that are just being subjected to rape by, by men here. But I think like too, you're talking about how satisfying it is when Jack and Agar becomes the agent for Arya's justice and not just for Arya's justice, but for objective justice. And that is extremely satisfying here. But as you also point out too, it's sad and it's fearful that Arya is in this position because the kills going forward are not going to be as satisfying. You know, Whis, as we'll talk about much more in Arya 8, not super satisfying the way that he dies. I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of like, it's kind of like gnarly. You're like, oh fuck, man, he got killed by his dog. <laughs> that's wow. That's, that's neat. But then you're like, well, but Whis is, I mean, he's, he's a shitty human being, but he, he's not Chiswick, Chiswick or whatever, however we're going to pronounce it. And then after that, the third wish becomes like the mass slaughter of the Lannister men at Harrenhal, the turning over of Harrenhal to Roose Bolton. And again, those rapes and those horrific atrocities that occur with Roose Bolton and the Bloody Bummers being in charge of this castle thereafter. So there is an element of ambiguity to Jack and being the agent of Arya's justice that gets explored much more fervently in coming Arya chapters. But here right now, it feels just. It was just what I did. I did it for the children sort of thing, the way that Danny puts at the end of a storm of swords, which is just really, really good. So I just want to say again, you know, well done for putting in a really good context that that helps to explain the situation while also giving it a sensitivity that I think sometimes gets 
forgotten in some of these analyses of these chapters. Because you can look at it just from the objective standard of this happened and here's why it happened. But you also have to look at it in terms of people. And this is an event, an event that occurs in the real world in many, many, many ways. Well, thank you, sir. I mean, I, I just imagine, imagine that that innkeep and his daughter after those men left that room, and imagine the silence. Who moved yeah. first? Who said something first? What do you say to each other? Do you just yeah. hold each other? What do you do after your life has been destroyed like that? And just my heart goes out, and the the, the anger and the hopelessness, and you just again, you you totally get where Arya is. It's just perfectly mm-hmm. done. So you were talking about the setup for the next couple Arya chapters in Heron Hall, shifting to foreshadowing and groundwork. We learn in passing in this chapter that Amory Lorch does not care much for Vargo Hout and his pretensions to lordship, and their mutual loathing will be built up over the next couple of Arya chapters, paying off when Vargo turns cloak and joins Roose Bolton, who promptly feeds Amory to a bear. <laughs> Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Yeah, it's one of those, again, extremely satisfying deaths that feels like justice. Again, it's being performed by Roose Bolton, so it, is it actually justice objectively? Hard to say. We'll we'll cover that when we get to Arya's ninth chapter in A Clash of Kings. And speaking of, of Roose Bolton, he's here. He's mentioned this chapter. Man, Roose the Noose is coming soon to A Clash of Kings, when A Clash of Kings near you. Uh, the gossip is that he's ac- occupied the Ruby Ford with his northern infantry, and it's also his frayed levies under his command. And this sets up his presence in the area. So it doesn't come out of nowhere when he takes Hall in Arya's ninth chapter, with a little help from the Bloody Mumbers and Weasel Soup, of course. And I think another element, too, about it, too, is that... And I was talking about this on Twitter with you a little bit, but Roose Bolton being at the Ruby Ford is, strate- is being is placing himself at strategically advantageous terrain so that Tywin Lannister can't really leave Harrenhal without leaving his base of operations, which allows Rob Stark to slip into the West. So he Tywin Lannister is essentially planted at Harrenhal until he learns that Rob Stark is actually out in the West, and he's like, "Fuck it, I'm just going to give up Harrenhal at this point. I mean, I'm, I'm I can save my family and King's Landing, eh, no, uh, or I can go out to the Westerlands and try and save my gold. Yes, we're going to go do that thing right there. But the reason why he's at Harrenhal at this place in the story and why Rob Stark is able to make it out west and encounter Stafford Lancer. Encounter, yeah, is that Roose Bolton is up there planting Tywin Lancer here at Harrenhal itself. And as with Roose, Beric Dondarrion is also haunting the fringes of these Arya chapters in the Clash of Kings before he reappears in the fiery flesh come a storm of swords. In this chapter, we hear about how many times Beric has supposedly been killed. And I love that because it seems like just crazy rumor mongering to a first time reader. It's like, oh, these are just conflicting reports, they're exaggerating. That's what you assume. Until you learn that Beric has actually been killed each time and is being resurrected. So that's that's a great setup for a reversal when we get to A Storm of Swords. Yes, I love that. I love how George works it in so that you're like, oh, I guess he's just surviving all these battles. And there's just kind of these rumors that are flying around all over the place as we learn like, oh, Tywin Lannister is, is importing silver to make swords to kill Stark Wards. That's true. Beric's just among those rumors. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he's just just a rumor. He, and he's uh, he's just surviving all these battles. So he's actually dying. He's being and he's, he's coming back from the dead each time. And you're like, ah, oh, it's just a rumor, right? Not really. Not really. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for those chapters in A Storm of Swords. Finally, in terms of our foreshadowing groundwork, Arya learns for the first time in this chapter that Rob is in the area. And so Riverrun replaces Winterfell as a refuge of family and safety, which she will desperately try and fail to reach over the course of this book and the next one. And this is interesting because at the end of A Clash of Kings, Arya is going to see on a map specifically where Riverrun is in relation to Hall. And of course, she's going to find that the um, the map is not necessarily the land. It's going to be a bit farther away than she actually realizes come the end of A Clash of Kings and the start of A Storm of Swords. It's devastating because, as she says, River runs a lot closer, so it becomes immediately much more realistic for her to get there than just to Winterfell on her own. But she's just going to be 
blocked and, and, and veered off course and brought so close every step along the way until she says it's a storm of sorts. It feels like she spent her entire life making for River Run, <laughs> and she just never gets there. It's, it's, it's real sad. So, shifting into our theory slash discussion portion of the episode, one of my favorite topics of all time, the Hall curse. We're finally going to debunk it slash bunk it. One of, <laughs> one of those two. This is a, a contentious topic, whether there is in fact some kind of curse on Hall as a bunch of uh, characters in-universe uh, always mumble about. And I think people get hung up on the word curse because it reminds mm. them of much goofier stories on A Song of Ice and Fire. And we here in the fandom all have a vested interest in presenting A Song of Ice and Fire as very serious and adult. But the magical side of this story includes characters referred to as cold hands and patch face, so it's not like <laughs> self-consciously silly elements are unprecedented in this series. Regardless, I think there is strong evidence that something beyond the material world is at work in Hall for two main reasons. One is the construction of it. Hall was built on blood and suffering, like Astapor over in Slaver's Bay. Everyone in the, in the Riverlands, you know, ble- was, was bled dry working to build this gigantic white elephant of a castle. Harren enslaved everyone in the Ironborn Empire of the Riverlands to make Hall possible. It was also made in part out of Weirwood. It's, mm-hmm. It stands on the shore of the God's Eye. It's neighbor to the Isle of Faces. And then, of course, it was promptly set on Dragonfire. And all of these things... <laughs> Blood, fire, weirwood, God's eye, Isle of Faces, all of these are repeatedly stressed as like the main ingredients of magic in these, in this universe. They have caused terrible transformative events elsewhere. Why would they not do it in perfect combination here at Heron Hall? <laughs> and then on top of that, you get the other main reason I think something's up here, and that is a history of horrors inside these walls. Jamie says it best in A Feast for Crows. Heron Hall has seen more obscenely grotesque violence and over-the-top indulgences than Casterly Rock, despite being only a tenth as old. That's written all over the backstory. Every time George returns to Hall, it's to tell another freaky ghost-slash-vampire-slash-minotaur story <laughs> within these walls over the history. It's just horrible stuff keeps happening every generation. We see it in the main story as well. All these monsters, Gregor, Amory, Chiswick, the Bloody Mummers, Roose Bolton, it's not a coincidence. Now, the counter-argument from the people who think there's no such thing as a curse and it's just a silly rumor in-universe is that Hall is a white elephant. It can be explained as just that. The downfall of those within its walls can be explained politically. It's impossible to hold. And naturally, such a divisive prize handed off to so many families has played host to some rather heated disagreements at times. That makes sense. <laughs> heated, that's good. To which I say, it's not or, it's and. As I said earlier, Hall's defining characteristic is how it signifies in multiple directions, broadcasting on multiple planes. This is not a zero-sum game. It's Hall is both a white elephant and a haunted dead zone, as far as I'm concerned. After all, Hall's politically contentious nature is not what killed Tywin, or Gregor, or Jano Slint. Seems like there might be kind of a curse at work that are striking down the occupants of Hall, Or not. It's almost like, like an uncertainty principle thing. I think this is one of those elements in the series that is supposed to be ambiguous. I think George gives us plenty of evidence to suggest that there's something... Again, beyond the material world at work here, but we are deliberately not supposed to know. And I think that's powerful because that changes how you feel about what happens in Hall. Can it be explained through sheerly mortal, mundane means? Or is this a world of age of wonder and terror? Is this a world of Jock and Hagar? Maybe both. I think you bring up great points. I mean, I, I tend to favor the the curse side of things, but I, it doesn't have to be a physical curse, and that it can't be like the curse of the golden of the of the black pearl or whatnot from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Like it, the, like that kind of takes it to a cartoonish direction, which is not, I think, what George is driving at. Which I think you emphasize really well. George is driving at for me 
seemingly the thematic reasons about why Harrenhal exists. It is a testament to arrogance. It is the Tower of Babel in Westeros. It is the place where man build their castle into the sky and touch God. And maybe I'm being a little bit poetic than more poetic than I'm used to, but I think it, it works for me as this kind of like symbol of man's arrogance and being brought down low by that arrogance by dragons, by another force that is operating on a magical plane. You know, it's it, it's it's so interesting to me that George, when he's doing these types of settings or characters or lineage, even like we were talking about in our pre-episode, for me, it's it's much more about the themes, about what Harrenhal represents and how those themes bring people low. As we were talking about in the pre-episode, it's about things like to take a, like a weird example, it's why John being actually the biological son of Rhaegar Targaryen doesn't matter as much as him being the thematic son of Ned Stark. It's why Tyrion has the same lineage, even if he's not the actual biological son of Tywin Lannister. He is inheriting the characteristics of his father figure in the story. Hall, and I know it's a weird example, but, but Hall to me kind of reads the same way. It may not actually be cursed. There might not be a ghostly curse by the old gods on this castle, although of course, of, although you point out that the werewolves were involved in the construction of the castle. It may be that it's a, thematically, it's it's a cursed place where people's arrogance and their hubris are brought low by these events. And as we've been talking about in this episode, Harrenhal is a both, represents both the juncture of the mystical and the secular in one setting and one location. And intermingling these two facets of life means that a character like Jack and Agar can exist in the same place that Amory Lorch can be tossed into a bear pit, right? That Weiss can be killed by his dog by magical slash poisonous means. This is important for me when we're talking about curses and we're talking about the mystical aesthetic that George likes to place on the story itself. It's about themes. It's about story. It really makes Harrenhal such a fascinating place. So I think you're slowly, slowly, slowly converting me over uh, to uh, uh. enjoying spending our our time here at Harrenhal, which is going to be a f- setting we are going to spend the next, I don't think we visited a Dance of Dragons, but the next three books in for sure. It's similar to the d- dynamic between Stannis and Melisandre, as I always say about them. They make each other more dangerous than they ever would have been apart. What Stannis yes. brings to the table politically, what Melisandre brings to the table magically slash religiously, that is such a potent combination that can lead them down such a dark path. And you, you see the same thing with Harrenhal. It's not that... There's a magical force here that puppeteers people. People make their own political decisions, come to Harrenhal for their own reasons. But there's also, I think, a presence here that you don't even have to have, call it a curse. Call it just a, the magical equivalent of radiation. Like something's going to happen <laughs> when you set weirwoods on Dragonfire. Like something's going to happen as a result of that. Call mm-hmm. it whatever you want. And I think we see it. We see it play out in in ways large and small. And I think George is walking this 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 very careful balance beam when he, when he he writes Harrenhal because I think he wants it to be this place where he tries to embody everything in his series at the same time and say these things have to operate the same frame and that's very ambitious but the fact that we we uh, I think went and took such a deep dive in this episode shows that he ended up with a, a really beautiful complex narrative and I love coming back to these chapters and I, I can't wait to do Arya eight and nine it'll be so much fun to do all those chapters indeed but I think that about wraps us up for this analysis of a Clash of Kings Arya seven as always. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. WordPress.com. 
We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, and our two newest High Lords, <laughs> Lord J. Manderley, Baker of Frey Pies, and Septon, Merryful Head of Hair. Thank you, as always, to our High Lords and Laders, and welcome to the Lord and Septon that are new to, new to the list. Yeah, it's so great to have two new lords with some great titles there, as I was saying at the start of this episode. Love the titles, keep the titles coming. And of course, if you are a small council or high lord or lady and you want to change your title, add something more, feel free to reach out to us at patreon.com forward slash noticast ASOF or again that email that mentioned that Emmett mentioned earlier. So join us next week for a Clash Kings Sansa 3. Remember, we are changing the published order and going to Sansa's third chapter in a Clash of Kings. As Rob Stark continues to kick huge months of Lannister ass. Yeah, fuck yeah. And Joffrey takes out his empty rage on Sansa. No, boo, bad Joffrey. Very, very bad. And I guess she's saved by protagonist, hero, Tyrion Lannister. Is this his best act in all of A Song of Ice and Fire? It's up there for sure. And like you say, a lot of reversals in this chapter. We're getting a lens on a... A big badass moment by Rob, but through Sansa being kind of horrified and persecuted for it. And then our, our perspective on Tyrion changes. So much much like Arya 7, Sansa 3 is a chapter all about upending our expectations. And I have a lot more to say about the parallels between those two when we get to it next week. Absolutely. Can't wait. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys next time.